Ramble. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bada bing, bada boom. They called it the death house. There were rumors that the owner of this death house would kill anyone for you. I mean, for a price, as long as you're willing to pay it, he's going to do it. And the guarantee here is nobody's ever going to get caught. Not you, the buyer, definitely not him. So you need a hitman. He's your go-to guy. You need someone to be held hostage and tortured. You call this man. You want to invite people over to a random house and throw a party? Bring him in. They can come meet his dogs. Whispers said his dogs were terrifying. They would be trapped in their little cages, but even then you just never wanted to get too close. You know when something just feels a little bit unstable and it feels a little bit unsafe, your eyes keep going for the cage locks to make sure they're not going to get out, right? Like they're not, these are bolted, correct? The dog's teeth would be showing and they would just be growling at you. Their cages would be shaking from the growling. It seemed like these dogs, they only listened to this man. They were trained by this man. And in return, he fed them well. Two men had gone to the death house and made it out with their lives. And they just had the craziest story to tell the police. They said, we saw him. We saw the owner of the death house. He's real. And he's a hitman. We saw him walk over to the dog cages with this big black plastic bag. And it just looked heavy. He was dragging it on the dirt floor. And he said, oh, it's the dog food. So we're like, yeah, that makes sense. He opens up his bag and he's like, sit. Reaches in, pulls out a piece of meat throws it into the cage, and these two men saw, laying on the floor of the dog cages, was the small, severed hand of a woman. The two told the police the death house owner didn't even know that woman, but we did. They said they knew who exactly that hand belonged to. She was a young woman who had gone viral recently. Everyone in the nation was talking about her. She went viral for exposing a famous professional soccer player in Brazil. She told reporters verbatim, if something happens to me, it was him. He did it. That week, Diane's husband ran in through the door and she's immediately alarmed. She was not expecting him to be home anytime soon. So Diane's husband, he's a bit of a wealthier man. He's got a very jam-packed schedule. He wasn't actually even supposed to be in this city on this property at this point. He usually stayed in his other home when he was working. And he's crying as he's running in through the door. And she's like, what's going on? He's telling her while he's trying to catch his breath that there's hitman after me and they're probably going to come after you and the kids too because of your association with me. So you, you got to go. Diane and the kids, they had to hurry. They had to pack their bags, get the kids from school and run. Otherwise, it was going to be too late. Fernanda's boyfriend was also acting strange that week. It was more intuition than anything. I mean, technically, if she pointed it out, he would tell her, you're just being crazy, babe. You're overthinking it. But she just knew. Something's off. He's normally the type to just like thrive at these types of parties. I mean, a couple is practically doing it in the pool. There's girls in these tiny little bikinis walking around everywhere. And every five seconds, they would call his name and giggle and wave at him. 
even when Fernando was there witnessing this, he would normally eat it up. Like this was his time. But this weekend, he just seems slightly on edge. His eyes keep scanning the property, just left, right. He's like watching everyone. He doesn't focus on all the girls that are half naked making eye contact with him. It's like he's a guard dog for his own home. Anytime someone tried to go into the main house to use the restroom, he would freak out. He would bark at them. Hey, don't go in there. You're not allowed in there. Fernanda was confused. And she thought, I just need to get into that house. Then I can see what's making him act so weird. Aliza, a single mom, stared at the man in front of her. And he's shoving her phone in her face. Call them. Tell them that you're doing okay. She snatches the phone out of his hand and she dials her friend. And her hand is shaking as the dial tone is ringing. Her friend's voice comes on on the other line. Hey, yeah, sorry for not picking up. No, I'm doing fine. Uh, Everything's going great. Don't worry about it. Everything in Elisa's body is telling her to scream the truth. No, everything is not okay. They're beating me. They keep threatening me. I don't know when they're going to let me go. But this man was watching her like a hawk. All she could do was hope that her friend could hear the truth in her voice, that something's not right. By the end of the week, one of these women would be dead. Another would be an accomplice in her murder. And the other one would be left with a child that was not her own. Isn't there a reason it's called The Death House? We would like to thank today's sponsors who have made it possible for Rotten Mango to support the National Network to End Domestic Violence. They are dedicated to creating social, political, and economic environments in which partner-related, workplace, and stalking violence no longer exist. This episode's partnerships have also made it possible to support Rotten Mango's growing team of dedicated researchers and translators. And we would also like to thank you guys for your continued support as we work on our mission to be worthy advocates of these causes. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. We had our wonderful Portuguese-speaking researchers gather the data for this case, which included pouring over documents, articles, going through books, documentaries, and providing the social and cultural context that was necessary for me to better understand this case. But as always, with really any case, but especially the international ones, please let us know if there was anything lost in translation, miscommunicated, or if there's any additional information that you have down in the comments. And before we get started, a quick disclaimer. There was a trial for this case, so technically it's considered solved. There were people charged, convicted, and sentenced, but some of the perpetrators involved are stating, hey, that's not what happened. And they all... They all kind of have like their own stories for the series of events, but it's questionable if it's even the truth or if that's just what serves their best interest. But just keep this in mind. The event shared in today's episode is based off of what the police believe happened from their piecing together of witness statements, CCTV footage, hotel receipts, cell phone data. But I mean, I wasn't there. I cannot say with 100% certainty that this is exactly how it all happened. There are also a ton of rumors and biases surrounding this case. And since this is high profile, there's pro athletes at the center of it. We did our absolute best to keep the information as objective as possible. But let us know if you feel differently. Now, with that being said, let's get into it. November 24th, 2023, a video was posted on YouTube by a woman named Rosie Aventura. Now, Rosie was going to explore this abandoned house. Supposedly, the house is haunted. I mean, it was left to rot. The furniture's gone. The walls are peeling. The windows are now on the ground. There's just glass shards everywhere. And on some of the walls that are peeling, there's these little red droplets. They look like blood splatter. The story is, 
Two people died in that house, and now it's filled with spirits. That's why Rosie was going to go investigate. Rosie went with her son, and she just wanted to talk to any lingering spirits that wanted to share their messages through her with the world. She's a paranormal investigator, a medium, which you know how I feel about that, especially when it comes to crime, but I digress. She walks into the house and her son is holding the camera, pointing it at her. And she's holding what they call a spirit box in her hand. It's basically a radio that automatically switches through all of the channels simultaneously. So you're just hearing different levels of static, just switching back and forth, like, right? So if someone past or living is trying to talk to you through one of these stations, you'll hopefully catch it. She's standing in the house and the radio is switching nonstop through the different stations, just ringing static out of the device. And Rosie asks out loud to nobody in particular, I'm here to help. You sent the signal to me. Do you want help? The white noise starts getting louder and you can barely hear the word seem. That means yes in Portuguese. Rosie continues asking other questions, but the answers, I guess, if you think you can hear them, they're all pretty vague. And then she asks, can you tell me your name? And she glances around. There's more static noise. And then a faint noise comes out. Aliza. Did you watch the video? Yes. Did it sound like that? I didn't think so. Mm, okay. <laughs> Now, American companies will fly to Brazil to shoot these adult videos. Um, quick disclaimer, I think it goes without saying nothing is wrong with sex worker choosing to do adult entertainment as long as it's consensual, as long as it's safe and of age, of course. And I think like any other career choice, it's a career choice. Everyone involved should be treated with high levels of professionalism. But I will say, because of social stigma, because of the shame centered around industries like this, predators, they just easily slip in and find their greedy little hands to make it a very dangerous industry. Especially in Brazil, where international companies have come to take advantage of Brazilian women. American adult companies will fly to Brazil and produce videos there. There are a lot stricter rules in the U.S. when you're producing these types of adult entertainment videos. So a lot of companies, they think it's just cheaper to book tickets to Rio de Janeiro, for example, and try to avoid as much of that legal red tape as possible. Oftentimes, they will go and exploit Brazilian workers because their rates just sometimes are not as high as they would be charging in the United States. A few Brazilian adult actresses, they were asked, hey, what is the worst part about your job? And they stated... Beatings during work. One of them stated that the, another girl that she worked with, I mean, she had it so bad. So during one scene, she was told that the man that she was shooting with was going to lightly hit her in the face for the scene. But this actor just starts pummeling her in the face without even removing some of his like hefty rings. I mean, he got so, quote, carried away that the video could not even be posted because it's just basically assault. It couldn't even be sold as a special interest video for those who might have that type of interest because it's, again, just straight up assault. Other actresses filed lawsuits because they stated even when they told the producers that they were experiencing internal injuries and ruptures during a shoot, they did not stop shooting. The actress stated she was in a group scene where she was the only woman with a group of over three men and she started bleeding. She was literally twisting in pain. Nobody stopped filming. 
And from what I can tell, this seems to be a universal problem in the adult industry. So it's not just Brazil, and it seems to be getting better in all countries. But it's just back when Elisa was in the adult industry, it did not seem like a safe, welcoming place. Again, I can't say for certain that it is even today anywhere in this world. But just clarification: shaming the shaming the industry, not shaming the performers. It did not seem like Aliza had a very strong passion for becoming an adult actress. I mean, it probably wouldn't have been her very first choice. Some people might say, "Well, everything's a choice. She chose to make money using her body." But the minute that Aliza turned eighteen, she got on a bus, twenty-five hours, basically fled her hometown. Porn was likely the only job that she could get that would hire her, so she made the best choice that was the best for her survival at the time. We don't know with a thousand percent certainty why Aliza was so desperate to leave her hometown, but there is an allegation. Aliza's mother alleged that Luis, Aliza's dad, would essay Aliza and even quote loan Aliza out to his friends. There was no trial or formal investigation, but in 2003, Luis was accused of essaying his other daughter, Aliza's half sister. So Aliza leaves the house at 18 years old, and she thought, you know, maybe I could try my hand at modeling. But it was just—it wasn't feasible to keep food on the table. It wasn't consistent. So she gets into the adult entertainment industry. Now, our researchers found reports that she was also engaged in sex work at the time and would be invited to these high-end parties being hosted by pro athletes in Brazil to perform and engage in services. Again, there is no judgment or anything wrong with this at all. It seemed pretty clear that Elisa was just trying to make it. I mean, maybe internalized a lot of that stress of life and thought it was her own problem, like an issue that she had with herself that she could not be a model, and now she was in this industry. She wrote on her social media bio, "I love music, walks, enjoying life with friendly people like myself, playing soccer, and reading poetry. I'm very affectionate. I love soccer." I I like everything. I live every moment of my life as if it's my last. I'm like the moon; everyone admires me, but I'm always alone. Eliza's friends describe her as almost this calming presence to be around. She just had this tranquil energy about her. It's very soothing, almost almost maternal in a way. Side note: Eliza was an avid soccer fan. Like her bio is downplaying it. She was obsessed with soccer. She played as a goalie for ten years of her childhood. It was one of her biggest、wow. passions in life. If she heard people talking about soccer, her eyes would light up. She would suddenly be super alert, all ears. She loved it. So, yeah, on one hand, she doesn't really necessarily love her job. Right, but it's nice to be around all these pro soccer players, to be invited to their parties, to share that same like fire of oh my gosh, did you see the game? Even if she knew that she was only there to work or to perform, at least she could hear them talk about soccer. She could rub shoulders with some of her idols. May twenty first, two thousand and nine, Elisa would meet a soccer player, Bruno, the goalie of the Flamengos, at one of these parties. He would later state that he was having intimate relationships with a full group of people, a full group of adults, and Eliza was one of them. She would deny this information and say, "No, just Bruno and I were having a very adult, intimate moment just between the two of us." Either way, Eliza would get pregnant that day by Bruno the goalie. And sometimes the best way to stay hidden is to not hide. 
Aliza stood in front of the police station and she's got these dark bags under her eyes. She's in this bright neon pink maternity dress and it's, you know, maternity dresses that are very flowy. She's looking at the reporters and she's looking straight into the camera saying, he told me I will kill you. I'll kill your family, your friends. I know where all of them are. So I'm saying if something happens to me, everyone should know that Bruno did it. She looked the reporters in the eye and stated, pro soccer player Bruno Fernandez, the goalie for the Flamengo soccer team, had kidnapped her, held her hostage, and tried to kill her. Aliza stated that after the very first meeting at that little party, they met up again and slept with each other twice more. They never made it official or anything, but she thought maybe it's becoming a romantic relationship. That's what it felt like. And now she's pregnant with his child. She told him about her pregnancy when she was three months pregnant, thinking, yeah, it's not the best situation. I've only met this guy three times, but this is something that happened from a choice that both of us made. But he immediately threatened her. He threatened her into terminating her pregnancy. Side note, terminating in Brazil is illegal, literally at any stage, unless you have been R-worded. If the pregnant individual's life is in danger by carrying this baby full term, or if there's a fatal fetal condition that has been detected, those are the only three ways that you can terminate. The last two conditions don't even apply to this case. So either Elisa would have to go and tell the doctors and lie that she was R-worded, which wouldn't even guarantee that they would allow her to terminate. Recently, an 11-year-old child was forced by a judge in Brazil to carry for weeks after she had been R-worded. Yeah. What do you mean carry for weeks? Continue with the pregnancy. For weeks? Yeah. Well, some sources stay till birth. Wow. So if you're found to have terminated a pregnancy without approval, which is obviously very hard to get, it seems, you can go to jail for up to three years. So the only other option that Bruno is suggesting to Elisa is to self-terminate with something called misoprostol. It's a prescription medication that's typically used to treat and prevent stomach ulcers. But it can also be used and is used in the United States. It's prescribed by doctors to terminate a pregnancy. But misoprostol is actually considered a control substance in Brazil for the sheer fact that it can induce a termination of a pregnancy. So now there's black markets for these pills. It's really easy to purchase. It took one reporter less than one single minute to find a seller in Rio de Janeiro just by walking around on the street asking random strangers. And self-inducing a termination is very dangerous. I mean, you could have internal bleeding. It's There's severe cramping. You could die. There's a huge risk that you're even getting counterfeit pills. So she tells him, I'm not doing that. I mean, she never planned to be a mom, but she's going to be a mom now. And she wanted his support. His response was to call Elisa, scream as loud on the phone as possible. What the fuck, Elisa? You're actually going to go ahead with this? Are you crazy, you slut? Aliza stated after that she was attacked for the first time. She was in a hotel room when she hears this aggressive knocking on the door. And it's Bruno screaming at her to open the door. She does, and immediately she's being assaulted. He's pulling her hair, slapping her face around, calling her a shameless slut. He throws her onto the bed in the hotel and starts poking his finger into her face. If you don't abort this child, I will kill you. Do you hear me? Aliza manages to run away, but the stress of fearing for her life, feeling like she's alone and all of this, I mean, has to raise a child by herself. 
she she doesn't even have money. I mean, remember, most of Elisa's job, it requires body work. So modeling, rumored sex work, those are all things that you would utilize your body for. And because she's pregnant, she can't find work. She has no income now. She's not in a position where she's got all these other career opportunities just lined up at the door, ready if she just wants to put in the work. It's terrifying. So all her friends, they tell her, you have to get a lawyer. Go to court. Ask for child support. This is the way it's done. So that's what she did. She goes to court and asks that they honor her request for food support and child support. And it's not a lot. Some sources say that she was just asking for $700 a month when Bruno was making tens of thousands, if not close to $100,000 every single month. He had a $600,000 base salary from his work on the Flamengos and probably over a million if you consider all the brand ambassadorships that pro athletes get. Others stated that she was asking for 10% of his monthly income, which would have been maybe around $10,000, which, yeah, okay, it sounds aggressive. It sounds like a lot, right? Some people were very upset about it. Bruno soccer fans try to call her out for being a gold digger. But it's not that crazy. In California, you're looking at 25% of your income going to child support in the case of a divorce, in the case of separated parents. But the problem was... One of the only things in life that Bruno seemed protective over was his money. October 12th, 2009, Elisa gets a phone call in the middle of the night. It's Bruno. She picks up and he sounds a little bit defeated. He's just begging. He's like, you know what? Let's just have a civilized conversation about everything. About, you know, forget going to court. Forget getting the media involved. I think that we can handle it the way it started. Just you and me. He sounds like he's throwing in the towel. He sounds like he's over it. Can I come meet you? He's like, no, I'm going to come right now. He can't wait till morning because he's got soccer practice. So right now. Elisa's staying at her friend's house and she agrees. Okay, I'm going to meet you outside my friend's house, literally right outside for like two minutes just to talk. That's it. So she throws on her pink maternity dress, throws on one of those fabric crossbody bags. She's hugging herself in the middle of the night while waiting outside for Bruno's car. It's late. It's one in the morning. She's anxious. She's tired. She doesn't know how this conversation is going to go. And suddenly this car pulls up and she's like, when did this guy get a Porsche? She always remembered Bruno of having a Range Rover. The window rolls down. It's Bruno. And through the light of the dashboard, the entire car just kind of lights up, glowing everything in the dark. And she looks to the back and there's a full grown man just passed out laying down in the back. It's my brother. Get in. Eliza hesitates, but she opens up the door, gets into the car, and they just drive in silence for a few seconds. And then he breaks. Eliza's not sure what's going on. I mean, maybe they're parking to talk in the car, but she looks out the window. In that little side mirror, she sees one of Bruno's assistants, dirty henchman's best friend, walking closer to the car. And now she's, she's not feeling good about it. Why would he just happen to be here in the middle of the night? And why is there another man walking with him? Why are there two men walking up to this car right now? The back door opens and the man from the back that was passed out gets up and makes room for the two other men to get in now. So now there's three men in the back, Bruno in the driver's side and Elisa in the front passenger. She's terrified. She looks to Bruno and says, if you try to do anything, my friends will know. I told her that I was meeting up with you guys, so she would report me missing and they would all look for you. The men don't say anything. One of the guys in the back just silently hands Bruno a gun. 
The three guys in the back reach towards the passenger seat and just start grabbing at her. They're grabbing, yanking her hair, slapping her, beating her from inside the car, almost blind because they're behind her. Bruno starts driving towards his apartment. He's holding the gun to her head, threatening to kill her unless she listens to everything that they're saying tonight. Once they get to the apartment, he gets into her face and he hands her a pill. Take it. She looks down and she already knows what it is. Misoprostol. She tries to fight them, but they hold her head in place and force her jaws open and shove the pill down her throat with no water. They do it again, and again, and another, and another. Aliza was five months pregnant, and she kept begging them. She would stop asking for child support completely. She would just run away and have the baby by herself. She'll move to the other side of Brazil. She, she'll move to a different country. But they would force open her mouth and shove another pill down her throat. They did this 12 times. The first few pills, Aliza was sobbing, begging for her life, begging for help. But by the last few, I mean, Aliza's eyes were unfocused. She probably didn't even have the energy to cry anymore. She likely felt numb and very drowsy. No matter how tense the situation, how much she wanted to fight it, her eyes are closing. She could not stay awake any longer. The last words that she heard were Bruno spitting in her face. I don't want the baby. You're not going to have the baby. And then she blacked out and she was alone. 12 hours later, they threw Elisa out onto the street and told her, you need to go to the hospital to confirm the miscarriage and send proof to Bruno. If not, we're going to kill you, your family, your friends. We know where they live. Elisa did not go to the hospital. She went straight to the police station and reported the kidnapping. There is a law in Brazil called the Maria de Pena law. It was named after a woman whose husband waited until she fell asleep so that he could shoot her. She ended up surviving, but she was paralyzed from the gunshot wound, spent two weeks in the hospital, was released. He came back and tried to electrocute her to death. So for two decades, this man was free and the court system did nothing about it. Her husband was a free man and she fought. She became a human rights activist. And finally, Brazil created a law in her name. And a big portion of this law is making it easier for victims to get restraining orders against perpetrators. So that's exactly what Elisa immediately applied for after this kidnapping. A protection order against Bruno. A restraining order. Elisa's female judge denied her request. Why? The judge stated in order for a domestic violence restraining order to be issued under this law, Aliza would have to have a relationship with a violent offender. But since they were not married or in a long-term committed relationship, the law did not apply to her. How does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. Now, at this point, after she had submitted all of her paperwork to the police, reporters found out what was going on. They came to the police station. She files this request for this restraining order. It gets denied. And all of this is now becoming more and more public because when you file legal proceedings like this, it's very easy for them to get out. And the rejection of the restraining order only pushed Elisa to go harder with the press. The police aren't protecting her. The law's not protecting her. I mean, maybe the public could protect her. They did the exact opposite. The public did not protect Elisa. 
Bruno issued an official statement. He held a press conference and the soccer player said, it's not the first time that Elisa has made up lies to try and harm my reputation. Last time she didn't prove anything and she's not going to prove anything this time either because she has made this whole story up. That is why I will only be addressing the situation through my lawyer who will be taking all possible measures to keep her from further hurting my image. She doesn't accept the fact that I don't want any sort of relationship with her. I won't give this, this female the 15 minutes of fame that she's looking for. Bruno goes on to give his version of the events that night, what he believes is the night of the so-called kidnapping. He said Elisa was blowing up his phone. What's new? She's just calling nonstop, begging him to meet up with her. So he gets up in the middle of the night, disturbing his peace, goes to see her at 1 a.m. out of the kindness of his soul. He shows up and she's immediately screaming his, her head off, shouting at him in the middle of the residential street. So, of course, he's trying to calm her down. And, you know, at the end of the day, he's a pro athlete. He can't have people know this. This is scandalous. Why is she screaming at him? He's like, hello, you're going to wake up the residents. But she won't relax. So he has no choice but to take her to his house where they stay up all night having this long conversation. He thought, OK, good. This is going to resolve the issue. Aliza fell asleep in his house and left the next morning. Walked straight to the police station and came up with this insane story about how he kidnapped her, drugged her, held her hostage, tried to kill her. He stated that he absolutely did not do any of that and he absolutely was not the father of her child. She's just trying to get money out of him. He claims that Elisa is lying about sleeping together multiple times. He stated it was just one time and it was in the middle of an orgy, okay? So yeah, we did have relations, but she had relations with a ton of men that day. So... Maybe she's pregnant, but how are we sure it's mine? <laughs> he is basically saying she slept with a bunch of men that night, which I don't know where this logic even is because that's not how conception works. Like, it doesn't just cancel out. But Bruno's teammates and his fans were nodding their heads. What's wild is Bruno is accused of being a kidnapper, a hostage taker, and an attempted murderer, but his teammates were joking with him in the locker room. They were slapping him with towels and saying, you ate the same dish as all those other guys, but you're the one that got indigestion. And if Bruno, his teammates, his soccer club, wasn't taking this seriously, maybe Elisa was a gold digger. Maybe she was a liar. That's what the public thought. She's an opportunist. She's a status hunter, which means she's free game. People started absolutely ripping into Eliza, digging up her past, what she does for work, calling her all sorts of names, hyper fixating on the idea that all women want is to get pregnant by a wealthy man and use all their money. Nobody believed her. Eliza needed protection, and instead, she was in even more danger now. She could see the public turning on her. Headlines were shifting from goalie Bruno accused of kidnapping woman to salacious gross titles about what her sinister intentions must be with a stunt like this. Bruno's soccer player mistress's scandalous past careers. It felt like Eliza had a gun to her head and she's telling everyone, look at me, look at me. And nobody's looking at her. Nobody's listening to her. They're all standing in the same room as her, talking about her, laughing about her, and no one will see the loaded weapon pointed directly at her. It's like a nightmare. She just wants to scream, can someone help me? But it felt like everyone was just saying to her face, but you're just a porn star. They accused her of being one of those girls that just could not wait for a rich man to come around and poke some holes into protection so that she could get pregnant. 
So Eliza turned around to the police and said, "Drug test me, please. Just test me. You're gonna see those very specific termination pills in my system. A lot of it." The police would run the blood test. The results would take months to come out. They were all positive for those drugs. But by that point, it was too late. Eliza would already be missing. And four women's lives, all revolving around Bruno, would just come crashing down. Eliza, the mother of Bruno's child, would be presumed dead. Ingrid, Bruno's fiance, would consider calling off the engagement because he cheated on her and got another woman pregnant, and now she's missing. Diane, Bruno's wife, would be taking care of a child that is not hers. And Fernanda, Bruno's girlfriend, would be in prison for her role in Eliza's disappearance. Back before Bruno was a pro soccer player, Bruno was just a shitty husband. One day after soccer practice, this is before he's a pro athlete, so he's making zero money at this stage. He's just training. He's just hanging out with the boys. He's trying to get signed with a club that will hopefully pay him a large fixed salary, but nothing's guaranteed. He comes home from practice and he throws a set of keys down on the table. His young wife Diane is like, "What is that? Our new car." She looks at him. What on earth are you talking about? We don't have money for a car. And if you think this is one of those cute moments where he's like, "Babe, it's because I got signed." It's not. She's like, "We we don't have." Yeah, we do, honey. We had our savings. He used their family savings that Diane worked her ass off. That was supposed to be for their future family. He used it to purchase a car. Diane was so tired. She was so tired of working all day, doing this all day, all night, night shifts, day shifts, nonstop work. She's so tired to even argue right now with this man. So she grabs his hand, drags him into the kitchen, and just opens up the fridge door and waves her hand up and down. Look, look, we have no food. We have nothing to eat. Bruno looked inside, and there was a half of a bottle of water in there. That's it. Bruno turned to his wife and said, "You're not being a great wife right now. I don't really feel your support for my happiness." Wow. Bruno absolutely loved that car. It was the only thing in his life that made him happy. I mean, clearly he loved it more than he loved his wife. He loved the looks that he got when he would show up to practice. He would park in the lot. Hey, I thought you always rode the bus. Not anymore. The only times Bruno didn't drive his car and took the bus again was because he didn't have gas money, and Diane would not give it to him. But Diane didn't leave because, for one, she was in love with Bruno. I mean, she met Bruno when she was twelve. Bruno was fourteen.、Um, they were childhood best friends. They didn't get married until she was eighteen, and he was twenty. But still, this is her childhood sweetheart. They grew up together. She loved him, but also because he was kind of an investment. He's gonna be a pro athlete. I mean, she didn't marry him because of that. She loved him, but she was very excited for him to contribute one day to the family as well. Because for years, all she's doing is contributing. At this point, the couple had their first daughter already. They would have another one, and Diane is living like a single mom. Bruno would go off to practice. Diane would be in charge of childcare, but also making sure that there's food in the pantry, making sure that they had leftover money every month for diapers. Bruno would not even lift a finger. She was paying for everything: house bills, everyone's food, clothes, transportation, gas money. I mean. One of her jobs, she would write essays for students in the local college. Two dollars per essay. She would spend all day doing as many as ten essays, and at the time, all of them needed to be turned in handwritten, not on a computer. 
and they're all on the same subject. So she would need to come up with a different perspective each time and then switch up the handwriting so that the professors wouldn't suspect anything and she would still have a job. And because soccer players and most pro athletes are required to have balanced diets, I couldn't find exact stats on non-pros just training in soccer, but one club in Germany stated that every week the team goes through 66 pounds of grass-fed meat, 44 pounds of wild-caught fish, 15 liters of milk, 18 pounds of yogurt, and around 180 eggs, all organic. Obviously, Diane can't afford that. But she does home cook every single one of his meals, spent all of her extra money on getting high quality vegetables, proteins and grains because Bruno uses his body for work. And in return, he promised her, babe, I'm going to play in the World Cup one day. The prize money rewarded to the winning team of the World Cup at the time would be anywhere between 30 to $35 million to be split amongst the team. And I think athletes are chasing a high, if you will. They call it the zone. A lot of them talk about it and they say they can't even quite put into words what it feels like. The feeling is very hard to grasp, they say. And there's levels to it. Like I know for me, I'm like, yeah, I've been in the zone. It's a state of flow. But I'm sure for pro athletes, it's a whole nother level. Like we're not talking about the same zone. Being on the soccer field, they describe it as It doesn't happen each time. Even if you're a pro, you're not in the zone for every game. You're not even in the zone once in every game. It happens once a blue moon. And when it happens, there's just no words to describe. You're locked in. There's only a small group of people that state that this is the true zone. Everything else is just hyper-focused. The zone, you don't hear or see anything else but the game. The ball, it's like, hyper fixated your eyes are fixated on it it's almost you lose connection with your body in a sense you're moving and you're doing all the right things but it's almost muscle memory it's not even it's in it's not intentional you lose feeling of your thirstiness what body part aches that sore ankle that you have that injury that you're pushing you lose all of that you are completely unaffected by the environment it's like your brain is floating and your body is just a vehicle That's the zone that Bruno needs to get into right now, standing on the green grass in front of the goalie net, because this is the playoff games that decides who is going to be elected to be on the Brazil's national team for the World Cup. So Brazil's got a bunch of different soccer clubs, and they're looking for the best of the best to fill their national team. As the goalie and the captain of the Flamengo team, which is one of the top three teams in Brazil. Okay, top four, some people say. They've got like 40 million fans. This is not like a small little soccer club. This is a massive club. You say he's the captain? Yeah. Wow. So he's a big deal. Big deal. He made it. He made it. Yeah. Wow. So Bruno, I mean, he made it. But when you go to the World Cup, you make it internationally. Um, A lot of people say that a huge goal is And I don't want to say this is for everyone. This is what our researchers told us. And one of them actually resides in Brazil. And she said that when you make the Brazil national team, you attend the World Cups, something of that caliber, then the next big step would be signing to a European team. Because not because they're any better or any sort of, you know, uppityness about it, but European teams get a lot of that celebrity press. Mm. And once you become that celebrity soccer player, The brand ambassadorships. That's where the money is. I see. That's that's a natural progression. Yes. So he's made it. 
but he's looking at a bigger goal. Mm. And this game was the make it or break it. If he could win this game, he could be part of the World Cup. He knew what people were saying. I mean, despite all of the scandals going on, that one girl, gold digger girl that was talking about this weird kidnapping hoax, whatever, right? It was a little bit of a bump in the road, but he still had a chance at this. He's still on the team. He's still allowed to play. Everybody's rooting for him. They're screaming his name because at the end of the day, they don't care what Bruno does in his private life. As long as he brings home that World Cup title, that's all that matters. Bruno's eyes are fixated on the ball. He just has to make sure it doesn't get past him and into the net. Don't let anything or anyone pass him. That's it. But it's really not that easy. It's really not that easy to focus on the game when back at home, you've got someone locked up and held hostage. Bruno was told as a kid, there's only three ways for him to get out of poverty. Become a singer, become a drug dealer, or a soccer player. The minute Bruno stepped out onto the field as a kid, everyone's like, yeah, no, you're not going to make it. He's tall, you know, which goalkeepers are usually the tallest on the team because they need to be able to reach up and block the balls. But he's kind of spaghetti noodle tall in the sense that he was very thin to the point that people thought he looked frail, like the wind would blow and he would lose balance. But he was good. There was no denying it. I mean, a country of kids who think that they will be the next soccer prodigy, he had something. He just did whatever it took to try and focus on soccer. Sometimes he would have to walk to practice because he couldn't even afford a bus ticket when he was a kid, which at the time, the ticket would have been like 20 cents. He would have been the only kid in practice that didn't have food. He didn't have any food from home to bring. His teammates would ask, hey, are you not eating? Are you not hungry? And he would sit there next to him, drenched in sweat and say, um, yeah, not hungry. There was just no way. I mean, they had been running around in the hot sun for hours. He's starving. They're all starving. So these kids, they would look down, break off a piece of their sandwich, and give it to Bruno. Maybe they kind of felt bad for the guy. I mean, Bruno did have a bit of a strange upbringing. He was raised by his grandma, Donna Estella. And because when Bruno was three, three days old, not three years old, three days old, fresh out of the hospital, his two parents, they look at each other and they're like, okay, let's just eeny, meeny, mo this. Okay, they didn't actually say that. They might as well have. They just decided to pick one brother, one of their kids, one of their sons to take and leave the other one with grandma. They did not take Bruno. It's said that his parents only came back into his life once he was a pro soccer player, which is kind of sad when you think about it. But that's not the only people either in his life. It said that a lot of Bruno's relationships in life changed once he became a pro soccer player. He started hating his wife, Diane, the one who supported him since they were like 12 and 14. He felt like you don't look like a soccer player's wife. You don't look like a pro athlete wife. So he starts very publicly cheating on her. Most athletes, they might at least try to hide it because at the end of the day, they're public figures. But Bruno, he would just invite his girlfriends to the games to sit front row. To take wow. them out to restaurants to eat, regardless of if paparazzi or any of these people were going to show up or not. He would bring them to his marital home. Some of them stayed in the house long term if Diane was at a different home. Or if Diane was around and upset, he would fulfill his husbandly duty and bring his girlfriends to a hotel instead and stay there with them. After months of this, Bruno would sit down and he would have these very dramatic moments, melodramatic moments, where he would think to himself, my life is so hard as a soccer player. Pro athlete, everyone wants to praise me, love me, be my friend, date me because I'm rich and famous. He just wished that there was someone who wasn't with him for the money. 
And then he'd be like, oh yeah, Diane. And then he would just run back to her and promise that he would never cheat on her again. And he wouldn't for the rest of the day. Bruno also believed punching his wife was a normal thing. At one of these parties, so the soccer players were allegedly known to throw group activity parties. Yeah, where a bunch of adults would come. The the pro athletes would be there. They would invite a bunch of women and they would all kind of pile on each other. Well, they're at one of these parties when they hear this really loud crashing noise outside, kind of like a car accident. But then it happens again and it's like, boom. And now the people at the party, they're like scrambling to put on their clothes, run outside, see what the commotion's about. And they see this woman completely red in the face, bat in her hand, swinging at one of the soccer player's cars. Bruno runs outside and is trying to talk to this woman. It's one of the other player's wives, but she's screaming at him. She's not listening. She knows that her husband is in there cheating on her. The situation escalates to the point where she finds Bruno's car and she's got the bat in her hand and she's ready to swing on Bruno's car now. So he runs over and he's like, not my car, you won't. He's up in her face, basically begging her to do something to his car. It's giving, try me. The other partygoers rush out, try to defuse the situation. And eventually, the woman's husband, Adriano, the other teammate, rushes out, grabs his wife, picks her up, throws her over his shoulder in front of everybody and ends up tying her to a tree. Just The whole incident became a major scandal for the soccer club. I mean, reporters even went to Bruno to ask him about the whole woman tied to the tree situation. And he just stared at the journalist, Bruno. And he said... Well, who here is married and hasn't once had a fight with their wife or even threw some punches? No one should judge or meddle in a married couple's fights. It's not your place. Somehow, this did not end his career. Diane gave birth to two girls during her marriage with Bruno. Not even a year after giving birth to their second child, probably still in the midst of postpartum, just finally feeling a little bit normal, Diane was going to celebrate her birthday. She's at home, notices Bruno's phone on the kitchen counter, and ding, a text message comes in. She walks over, it's from a woman named Ingrid, and she's asking, what time will you be home? Diane's thinking, home? Like, that, that's a really bizarre text to get. She grabs his phone, shoves it in his face. What is this? Shameless Bruno just straight up admits, Oh yeah, I've been living with another woman. Her name is Ingrid. And, I mean, I'm not going to make any excuses. Like, all the times that I said that I was out doing other things at practice. No, I was at this woman's house. And by the way, we're engaged. He's still married to Diane. Mm-hmm. But he proposed to a woman named Ingrid. Diane packed her bags and went to go stay at his ranch house. She was done with Bruno in the romantic sense. I mean, the two of them would actually stay very close and they were not legally divorcing anytime soon. But Bruno was very happy with his new single status. And so was Maka, a.k.a. Macaroni. That's his nickname. Literally, that's the, that's the translation. So Maka was more than excited to be the only constant in Bruno's life. Maka has been part of Bruno's entourage since they were wee little trainees, way before they were pro athletes. Maka is Bruno's childhood best friend. They go way back, further than even Diane. Maka's a strange guy, though. A lot of people said he almost got too protective over Bruno. Like, he was that protective friend that looked jealous or annoyed if Bruno ever had other friends joking with him. Like, he'd be like, what's so funny? What's the inside joke? Why don't I know? Friends said, yeah, Maka would die and kill for Bruno. It's a little weird. 
He even got a branding of sorts for Bruno. Okay, it's not a branding, but it's basically a tattoo on his back that reads, Bruno and Maka, the friendship that not even time will destroy. True love. What, what do you mean? Like in the word, just exactly verbatim? Verbatim. Bruno and Maka, the friendship that not even time will destroy. True love. Huh. Yeah, I, I, would you get that for your friend? That's weird. It's a lot. Yeah. Before Bruno was a pro athlete, Maka was married and had children of his own. So he had his own family priorities, but he would still secretly support Bruno by giving him a portion of his pay every single month. The only other person that might compete for Bruno's attention was his nephew, Jay. Jay was 17 years old. He was hiding out in Bruno's house. Jay had been a part of a drug trafficking gang, and his main job was a transporter. So he would move drugs around. A bus driver for narcotics, if you will. Well, he lost a load, okay? The drug gang is trying to kill him, so he's hiding out in Bruno's house. He owes Bruno for taking him in while drug gangs are out for him. So Jay, Jay's willing to do just about anything to repay him for his, for his great gratitude that he feels. Jay's like, you want me to wash your car? I'll wash your car. You want me to run errands? I'll go do it right now. Whatever Bruno wants, Jay's going to do it. Since we're talking about Bruno's inner circle, there's also Sergio. He's not really part of the main inner circle, but he is Bruno's cousin. So we've got Maka, the childhood best friend with the tattoo, Jay, the minor nephew, and Sergio, the cousin that's kind of in and out of the circle. They are all Bruno's yes men. And getting him into the World Cup is not just Bruno's big day. They're thinking this is our big day. All our work for Bruno, all of the running his dirty errands, cleaning up after him, lying for him, covering for him, it's going to pay off when he gets to the World Cup. What year was this? He was practicing for the 2012 World Cup. Oh. Yes. But they lost that game. He didn't get picked? No. Hmm. Bruno had no chance in the World Cup. Not that he would either way because he'd be in prison. Right after the game that he lost, Bruno called his friend and said, I need a BMW, but I need it to be bulletproof and have no GPS tracker. Is an odd request. Eliza wasn't allowed to talk to her mom growing up. Her dad wouldn't let her, which is strange considering her dad never wanted her in the first place. That's what's said. When Eliza's mom, Sonia, was pregnant with Eliza, she was so excited to tell her husband, Louise, like, we're going to be parents now. He beat her and demanded she terminate. Sonia did not, and Eliza was born. And because Sonia couldn't afford to take care of her alone, in this almost sad and twisted turn of events, Eliza ends up living with her dad instead of her mom, and he wouldn't even let them see each other. That coupled with the poverty, the allegations that Eliza was essayed by her own father and, quote, sold to his friends to be used, I don't think anyone would have blamed Eliza for being very angry at her circumstances. But she wasn't. Maybe Eliza felt like, Against all odds, she was born and she survived because her mom did not terminate. And maybe the same could be said about Bruno Jr. Aliza's pregnancy was somehow not terminated when she was force-fed the 12 pills when she was held hostage. Now, a lot of people believe it's because... it. We don't know for sure. The speculation is that those specific pills were supposed to be suppository pills, uh, physically entering the private part. But instead... They just made her orally take it. Mm. Or perhaps Bruno had bought counterfeit pills, but that doesn't make sense because the drug test came back positive. And with or without Bruno, Elisa was determined to be the parent that she wished that she had growing up. Baby Bruno was born and Elisa was 
I don't want to say because we don't want to speculate, but a lot of moms report feeling a sense of purpose when they become moms. And there's this whole controversy around this, but a lot of people were upset with Aliza's naming of her baby. People thought that she was being obnoxious and trying to incite drama by naming her child Bruno Jr., basically. They felt like she's saying, well, if Bruno won't claim my child, I'm going to make it known to the world that this is his child one way or another. Which, I don't know, even saying that out loud, I'm like, I don't know what the problem is. If that really is his child, the child that he's responsible for, as well as the father, but like, I, I don't get it. But it was a whole thing. People were just finding anything to rip Aliza apart with. So she's trying to stay away from the press and preserve her safe space with her new baby, just focusing on being a mom. She would take her son on walks. She said that he was very, very quiet, very well behaved, and really only makes a fuss when he's hungry, which he eats super, super well. And whenever Bruno senior the dad was playing uh the flamingos were playing on the tv she would turn it on and let him watch this was the man that basically tried to kill her but she still wanted her baby to know that he had a father and hoped that one day they would have a relationship and maybe it was happening Bruno's entire attitude changed. Once he saw baby Bruno, this is his first son, maybe something shifted in him. He's like, you know what? That's my baby. I regret being so horrendous to my baby. This is my baby. I'm looking at this baby. That's my baby. He even starts calling Elisa baby. Being kind to her, offering to send her money. He started sending her $200 a month, which honestly is not enough to take care of a kid. And some months, Bruno wouldn't even send her money. A lot of brand endorsements were dropping Bruno and he was being used less and less on his team. But to Elisa, he's still trying. He even agreed to do a DNA test and promised to take full responsibility for baby Bruno if the child was indeed his. He said, if the baby's mine, I will give you an apartment. I will give you a bigger monthly support payment. Elisa was so relieved. She, at this point, she had been making no money. No one would hire her. She had to sell clothes, any possessions that she had. She sold it all for baby formula and diapers. And he tells her, you know what? I feel bad. I'm going to bring you to Rio de Janeiro because they don't live in the same town. I'm going to bring you here. I'm going to book you a nice hotel. And I'm going to give you $6,000 in cash so that you can buy furniture and other things for the baby. You just need to come here to Rio to pick it up because I'm busy. She's a little hesitant. She thought, going to a different city to get cash from this guy who kidnapped me after everything that Bruno did, it's dangerous. But she really, really needed the money. She needed the money for survival. So she went. Now, the next series of events come from a confession from an involved party. A lot of the facts were verified through CCTV, hotel guest records, cell phone tower pings, and witnesses. But some facts have not been verified and are still to this day debated. So take this with a grain of salt. The series of events moving forward have just been stated by one of the accomplices. But I am not stating that this is fact, nor is it the truth. I was not there. This is just what a lot of investigators and most netizens believe have happened. Aliza went to Rio to meet up with Bruno, but instead of Bruno coming to the hotel to meet up with her, she gets a call from Bruno's little tattooed henchman, the best friend that does all the dirty work, Maka. And he's like, hey, I'm going to pick you up from the hotel, take you to Bruno's apartment so he can give you the money. And maybe we'll take you to the apartment that you're going to move into. So get ready. 
Hotel CCTV shows Elisa walking out with baby Bruno. That is the last time she would be seen by anyone not involved in the crime. Because she walks out into the parking lot, spots Maka's car, which is just Bruno's Range Rover, opens up the backseat door, slips inside, closes the door behind her. Maka's in the driver's seat. She's in the backseat. She's thinking this is enough distance because she really doesn't like the guy. But she didn't know that Jay, the nephew, was hiding in the trunk. And this is a Range Rover, so the trunk is not an enclosed space. Mm. He pops up out of the trunk, jumps out, surprises Aliza, and grabs the handle of his gun and pistol whips her three times on the head. It is said that she had an open wound and was actively bleeding now. There was blood all over the car. The injury was severe enough that Aliza was not in a state where she could even hold her baby in her own arms. She was drifting in and out. She was in a lot of pain. Maka and Jay are looking at each other like, well, I don't think that was part of the plan. I feel like we were just supposed to get her to the apartment first. But, oh, well, we're just going to have to deal with it. So on the way there, they're like, we don't know what to do with this kid. Like, she can't even take care of her own kid because that's how injured she is. But now there's just like a kid. Are we supposed to kill the kid or what? I don't know. So it's a weird situation. They call Bruno's girlfriend at the time, Fernanda. So just to give you a recap, Bruno is still legally married to Diane, but separated. She's living at the ranch house. He's living in Rio. He's engaged to a woman named Ingrid, who he keeps out of all of this, but he stays engaged to her. He later marries her. And he's got a girlfriend, Fernanda. Hmm. So they call the girlfriend. And Fernanda is like, okay, yeah, I mean, that's a little weird, but I guess I'll come take care of this like random baby. I don't know, right? She shows up and it's claimed that Eliza did not know that the severity of the situation. If this is true, she likely thought that Jay was young. He acted on his own accord, hit her on the head because he got overexcited by this weird plan of like kidnapping her. But Bruno probably would beat him up when he gets home. Give Eliza the apartment and money and she would move on with her life. But right when Bruno gets home from his failed game, because remember, she was being held hostage at his apartment while he's playing that playoff game. This is when he loses because he knows that Eliza is in his house. Head wound, head trauma, oh, being that's held by Jay. Yeah. Oh, wow. So he comes home and he's in a pissy mood. He's got his bulletproof GPS less BMW and he suggests, hey, let's go to the ranch house instead. It's like isolated. It's not an apartment like this real apartment. Let's go there. He tells Eliza that the money was there, the cash was there, and they could stay for a few days and he could bond with the baby and just have fun. I mean, it's a seven-hour drive. Let's do it. On the way there, Bruno realizes, shit, Diane is at the ranch house. He diverts the rest of the group to stay back and... He's like, don't come near the ranch house until I get her out. He goes in there first and Diane remembers he's slamming the door open. He's crying. She never really saw him cry. So that was alarming. He's rushing to her and he's telling her something along the lines of Aliza is threatening to kill me. She's got a hitman out on me. She's crazy. Please, you have to get out of here. Hurry, take the kids, pack your bags. I want you guys to be safe. It's so dangerous. I got to deal with it on my own. I don't I could never live with myself if something happens to you. And he's crying. Yeah. What? When he left, he likely just wiped his tears and opened the door for Eliza and the rest of the group. Immediately upon entering the ranch house, the energy shifted. Eliza was no longer allowed to be near her baby. They were kept in separate rooms, and it was likely that the group was trying to use baby Bruno as a threat to try and get Eliza to do whatever they wanted. Eliza was effectively held hostage in that house. We're not sure if she was tied up, if she was drugged, if she was changed, but even if she wasn't, she wouldn't have to be. If they had her baby, she was willing to do anything. While she's being held hostage at the ranch house, it's said that Bruno still threw his typical crazy weekend barbecue parties with naked women and 
potentially group activities. He might have honestly gone a bit harder this time because he lost his chance at the World Cup. He seems like this hype to go crazy, to drown his feelings. So he left her at the ranch house and went back. No, he's throwing parties at the ranch house. And he's not letting anyone in the bathroom. And Fernanda thinks it's weird because this is her boyfriend who loves these parties. But now he's like, no one go in the main house. It's weird. She's like, what's going on? And then there's, there's this baby. It's just like weird. At this point, at one of the parties, Sergio, Bruno's cousin, remember the one that's in and out of the inner circle, he ends up coming to the party and he tries to go to the bathroom and he's blocked by one of the other minions, either Maka or Jay. And he's like, what do you mean I can't use the bathroom? Don't be crazy. I'm his cousin. It's not like I'm a stranger. I use the bathroom in here all the time. Move out the way. And they wouldn't. It was weird. Sergio said he started investigating because he wanted to know what the hell was going on. Like, why can't he go to the bathroom? He ends up peeking through the window and he sees Elisa there with a bloody head wound. And he starts panicking. He's never met Elisa, it seems. But he's like, that's Elisa from the news. The one that said, if anything happens to me, it's Bruno. Everybody knows Elisa. He runs over to Bruno at the party. Like, can I talk to you? Pulls him over to the side. And Bruno's like, what? What have you done with her? Bruno allegedly says... What's done is done. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. After the weekend, it stated that the group made Elisa call her friends to tell them, don't worry about me. I'm doing fine. Sorry I didn't call you back. I'm just hanging out with Bruno and we're going to check out new apartments soon. She was not fine. She had been moved from Bruno's ranch house to what the others called the death house. It's owned by a man named Bola, which means ball. He's an ex-cop turned dog trainer, turned dog breeder. And I'm not going to say which dog breed because I think they're constantly villainized. And I think we all know that it's the owner, not the breed of the dog. But still, I do question if he was just a dog breeder. This is purely speculation and theory. But there are some netizens who also feel like he was likely a dog fighter. He would train these dogs to fight, host events where people would come and bet on certain dogs, watch while they just like mauled each other apart until... There was only one dog left standing. Eliza is brought to Bola's house, the death house. And it's interesting. A lot of netizens were wondering, why? (laughs) Like, this man just comes out of nowhere. He's not friends with Bruno. He's not part of his entourage. Why would he let them bring a hostage into the house? Is it because he's like a hired hitman? Did Bruno just pay for this? It's a little more complicated. Bola allegedly had a son that wanted to be a pro soccer player which I'm sure he had some skill, but like any industry, having the right connections can take you further. So it's alleged that once Elisa arrived at the death house, Bola starts questioning her like he's a cop all over again. He's barking at her. Are you on drugs? She's like, no, sir, please. He gets up in her face, allegedly, according to Jay and Maka, grabs her hand and sniffs her fingers one by one and then starts patting her down, inspecting her pockets. And it stated the whole time she was begging with him, please, sir, I just I just don't want to get beaten again. I can't take it anymore. It's also stated that Maka was holding baby Bruno at this point. Now, some sources allege, like some witnesses say that Bruno himself was there watching this whole thing. Some sources allege that he was at the ranch house. He knew what was going on, but he was not here. Either way, Bola allegedly smiled and stated, Don't worry, Eliza, you're not going to get beaten. You're going to get killed. Later, Jay would state that Bola grabbed a necktie, wrapped it around her neck and started pulling it. They said that it took a few minutes. At first, her eyes were wide, and then her veins started popping in her eyes, and the whites turned red from the blood, and foam started coming out of her mouth until she finally stopped moving. She was dead. 
Bola denies this, but Eliza's body has never been found to this day. Jay and Maka stated, we saw, we saw Bola strangle her, kill her, and then he took her body into his house while we, we stayed outside with the baby. They stated that they saw Bola come out with black garbage bags that looked really heavy. He was dragging it on the floor. He walked straight up to his dog cages, opened up the black plastic bag, reached in, pulled out two pieces of meat for the dogs and threw it into the cage. A set of severed hands. They stated that he turned around and said to get rid of fingerprints. They would later state that Maka was crying and Jay was left holding baby Bruno. And both of them looked down at the baby and thought, now what? What about the baby? Aliza's friends all received calls from her that she was fine. But when the call stopped immediately, they started alerting the police that Aliza and her baby are missing. Of course, Bruno is the first person to be questioned. He gave a full interview to a journalist and stated, oh, I haven't seen her in months, like maybe two, three months ago. I just went to go meet the baby. But that was the last time I saw her. You know, it's an awkward situation, but I already put everything in God's hands. I really hope that she appears and we can just end all of this. It's just been so troublesome. I mean, I'm sad about this. I really am. I really am hoping that she comes back just as much as everybody else is hoping, right? Nobody believed him. Suddenly, all the people that were making fun of Elisa calling her a gold digger were activists who were wondering what happened to her and how dare he do this to her. And it's pretty obvious where Bruno's confidence is coming from. When Elisa came out to state that she was kidnapped and almost killed by him, everyone hated her. So it seems natural that he would only think that he's untouchable to the point where this is how everything starts unraveling. It's like through sheer audacity and confidence. Jay, the nephew, was told to get Bruno's Range Rover cleaned because it was the car that picked Elisa up from the hotel so it might have her blood, her DNA. They wanted it thoroughly wiped. Jay's excited. He's 17. He's like, a Range Rover? On his way to the car wash, he can't help but speed. He wants to test out what this car can do. And the lights come on, the sirens start whirring. He's pulled over. And this is a completely separate incident from the actual crime. This has nothing to do with Elisa. Police saw a Range Rover speeding, doing dangerous turns. They pull it over. They run the registration and realize that the car had several unpaid tickets. They take the car into police possession. They're like, we're only going to release it when the tickets are paid. Bruno, knowing that this is the car that Elisa was driven in and likely had her blood in it, did not feel compelled to pay the tickets and get his car back. He just let it sit in the police station until they put two and two together. They're like, wait, this is Bruno's car. Bruno is probably involved in a woman's disappearance. Let's search his car. They find droplets of blood in the car, brought in 17-year-old Jay, the nephew, and he immediately confessed. There was no loyalty. There was nothing through all of them, including himself, right onto the train tracks. His first version is commonly accepted as the series of events that I told you about earlier, and they were all arrested. Bruno, Maka, the tattooed best friend, Bola, the cop, and another guy named Zizi. Zizi's like an ex-cop. Like, the whole thing is bizarre. Zizi would be accused of being the connection that connected Bola with Bruno. So Zizi knew Maka and Bruno. Bruno and Maka didn't know Bola, but there wasn't enough evidence, so he was not sentenced. But Bruno, Maka, Bola, and Jay were arrested. Sergio, the cousin that noticed Elisa's head wound, was also arrested. And according to Jay, the nephew, Bruno was not there when the murder took place. But when they all went back to the ranch house, they started burning Elisa's belongings. Diane and Sergio had come back to the ranch house. And Diane sees this giant bonfire with a red suitcase. Sergio's confused. Sergio's like, what's up with the fire? Where's Elisa? Jay looked at him and allegedly said, she's gone. 
What do you mean she's gone? It's alleged that Jay told Sergio everything, confessed to everything, and Sergio started panicking. Like, why would you do that? Wouldn't it just be easier for Bruno to just solve it in court? Bruno allegedly looked at him and just said, I know, I regret it now, but it's done. Diane comes down and she asks about Elisa in front of Sergio. And Bruno, in front of Sergio, turns to Diane and goes, she went back to the city to grab some more stuff for the baby. She's going to be back in a few days, but Diane, do you mind taking care of the baby until she gets back? Sergio was questioned and arrested, and then they brought in Diane, because now there's mention of baby Bruno. Where the hell is baby Bruno? Maybe Diane has him. Diane did not. Diane's story was she thought it was strange that Bruno wanted her to watch Elisa's child and Elisa was gone, but she agreed to it. Bruno went back to the city and was just business as usual, going to practice, going to parties. He would literally post being at beach parties with a bunch of women and she's here taking care of baby Bruno. She looked at the date. I mean, Elisa was supposed to be here days ago, right? That's what Bruno said, but she's not. And Diane can no longer take care of this baby because she's got two kids of her own. So she passed the baby on to Maka, the tattooed best friend. Maka gives it to his wife and then his wife gives the baby to another person and another person. And by the time that Diane was questioned by police officers, she didn't even know who had baby Bruno anymore. He had been passed around so many times they lost track of him. Thankfully, they tracked the baby down and after a lengthy custody battle between Aliza's parents, Sonia, Aliza's mother, was awarded full custody of her grandson. Murder and company, so Bruno's little inner circle, they immediately start turning on each other. Sergio agreed to work with the investigations as a key witness, which was going to be a big problem. Jay, the minor nephew, was technically the one to snitch first, but he's a minor. He was also involved in the crime heavily, more so than Sergio. So a lot of the attorneys were thinking, we could just be like, you know, Jay's making stuff up because he doesn't want to be the one to take the fall for it. We could push back and say he's got incentive to lie, but Sergio doesn't. Which is why, before the trial, Sergio was taking a walk near his house when a car came by and shot six bullets into him, killing him. What? Just like that? It's suspected that he was killed so he could not testify against the others, but there wasn't enough evidence to convict anyone on this. That's insane. Just like that, they don't even want to talk about the, that murder. No. There were wow. threats against the judge's life, the prosecutor's life. Like, just, it was a lot. Eventually, rumors started circulating that Bruno and Maka were gay. That was also a thing. Yeah, before the trial, Bruno's attorneys actually started the rumor. They said that Maka was gay, and that's why he got the tattoo of Bruno and Maka. He was obsessed with Bruno, and he was killing Elisa to get her out of the way. He was obsessed with just being the only one in Bruno's life. Now, Maka, the tattooed best friend, would end up suing Bruno's lawyers for defamation. Bruno was caught sending a letter to Maka in prison and it was basically saying, Maka, I don't know how to tell you this, but I talked to a lot of lawyers and they came to a conclusion that we need to go with plan B. You said if needed, you would stay here and told me to never abandon you. So the time has come, brother. I would never ask you to do that, but now we cannot think only for ourselves. We have greater responsibilities on our hands, our kids. So brother, I beg you to think about it and forgive me. I've always been and still am a man with you. This letter was intercepted by authorities and Maka, the tattooed best friend, was asked about what plan B was and he stated it's Maka taking the blame for it so that Bruno could go back to playing soccer and Bruno could take care of Maka's kids and family financially while he rotted in prison. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did they do it though? No. Oh. Maka was like, I'm not doing that. First of all, I'm not gay, which nothing's wrong if he is. But he's like, don't be trying to push this on me. So they all started turning on each other. Wow. Wow. The- 
what happened to Maka and Bruno forever? Exactly. In the end, Bruno was sentenced to 22 years in prison. Maka, the tattooed best friend, was found guilty, sentenced to 15 years in prison. Jay, the minor, was sentenced to three years in a juvenile correctional facility. Fernanda, the girlfriend, would be sentenced to three years in prison, but that would later be reduced to community service work. Diane was fully acquitted of all crimes. And Ingrid, the woman Bruno was engaged to while all of this was happening, she decided to marry him while he was in prison she forgave him and it stated and i don't know if this is true but people stated that she was actually more upset about his cheating than the fact that he was in prison for facilitating a murder now here's where it gets crazy bruno was granted parole in 2023 serving less than a third of a sentence he's only 32 years old and he is now recently signed with the second division club in southeastern brazil for two years the club owner publicly stated about he came out already he came out and he's playing soccer what the club owner stated he was found guilty he served his time and he was released by the courts he deserves another opportunity bruno even said in an interview last year what happened happened i made a mistake a serious one but mistakes happen in life i'm not a bad guy people try to bury my dream because of one mistake but i asked god for forgiveness so i'm carrying on with my career dude he said that not me (laughs) Yeah, which really divided netizens. Some stated the rehabilitation for this type of heinous offense committed by him should not be in soccer where children look up and see players as heroes. But others commented the social justice warriors need to make up their minds whether they support ex-prisoners rehabilitation and second chance to life or not because he already served his sentence and according to the law, he does not owe anyone anything else. That is actually some of Bruno's milder fans. There are some fans who have done really sick things like photoshopping Elisa's photo into a bag of dog food. Bruno is still married to Ingrid. They have a daughter together, and which is terrifying. He posts about his family life like nothing else has happened, and some comments can be translated into, great goalkeeper, God bless you, and my idol. Elisa's body has still not been found. There are theories. I mean, it's weird because a lot of netizens believe if Bola were to tell the authorities where her body was, he would get time shaved off. So the theories are he really did feed her to the dogs and there's no way to retrieve her body because they state pigs are not the only ones capable of eating humans. Dogs are said to be able to eat other animals, bones and all. Perhaps he really did dismember Elisa and feed her to the dogs and he can't admit that so he's staying quiet. Or another theory is that he only fed the dogs Elisa's hands so that her fingerprints could be gone but her body was buried in concrete somewhere else that's what Mak and Jay stated but the question is if she's buried somewhere else why wouldn't Bola tell everyone because maybe she's not the only one buried there is the theory Sonia, Elisa's mom, is now taking care of baby Bruno and stated that when baby Bruno was younger, he kept asking where his mom was buried. He is now 13 years old, and according to Sonia, he goes to weekly therapy. And for the longest time, Sonia tried to stop him because she didn't want baby Bruno to follow in the steps of her father. Baby Bruno wanted to be a soccer player, a goalie to be exact, and he's really good at it. But I think that we can say he is not following in the footsteps of his father. He is following in the footsteps of his mother instead. She was passionate about soccer. Her position was the goalie. And it said that he's really good and has just this really kind, serene heart, just like his mom. Aliza once stated she's like the moon. Everyone admires her, but she's all alone. Hopefully, baby Bruno knows that even during the day when the sun is out, the moon is still there. Sometimes you don't see it, sometimes you do. And perhaps Eliza is his moon, always watching over him and guiding him. 
And that is where I leave you with today's case. What are your thoughts? What do you think happened? Where do you think Elisa's body is? Let me know in the comments. Please stay safe and I will see you guys on Sunday for the next one. Bye.